Good morning, everybody. It's Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm here for Reinvent Yourself. And today is Covey's second birthday. Woohoo! So I want to say thank you to all of you who've been great supporters of Covey for the last two years. And thank you to all of you who have You've helped me with these uh, recordings as well. You've sent me criticism, you've sent me boosters, and I've tried to respond to as many as I can. And hopefully you will see that this, the, the quality of the recording has improved with all of your help. I couldn't have done this without you. And I am so excited because we have a wonderful guest today, Indrani Goradia who is an amazing, amazing person who has decided that she is going to help people deal with their domestic violence issues. She has a foundational training organization called raftcares.org. And she teaches people and you can even get her tools, which are right on her website for free. And you can learn how to help yourself and help others who have suffered some kind of domestic violence of some sort. She has a wonderful story about growing up in Trinidad and having a baby and not realizing that she had sublimated all this abuse from her childhood until she had a baby. And it all kind of came out and she decided she was going to break the generational trend in her family. And it took a lot of work on her part. And it also made her stand up to her parents and get her parents to change at a old, much older ages, because they were grandparents, their behavior towards children. And it's a really inspirational story. I think you will enjoy it. And again, thank you for being part of Covey Club. And thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you love us, please follow us. Please subscribe and give us some stars. It's our birthday. Give us some stars. The only way that um, other people find us is through the stars. So here we go with Indrani. Hi, Indrani. How are you? So good to have you here. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited. I'm so glad we rescheduled. Yes. Yes. So we could reschedule when the tree man came in your house and when the garbage man decided to come late at my house. So (laughs) it's perfect. It's perfect. (laughs) So let's start. You really have such an interesting background and such an interesting life. And I know these listeners are going to love to hear it all. So talk a little bit about where you grew up and where you went to school. and how, and then we'll talk about how you got into this business. But where did you grow up? I was born and grew up in Trinidad and Tobago in the West Indies. It's uh, a country made up of two islands right off the coast of Venezuela. I went to a Catholic convent school my entire life. Mm. And when I got to New York City, I went to, uh, of course, a co-ed college. And I was shocked that I had to sit next to boys in the same classroom. 
How did I, you handle that? For, for the longest while, I, I just didn't speak up. I didn't know. And I was already a grown up. I started college at 21. So I, I didn't know how to navigate these creatures. Um, but when I figured it out, I was all over the place in the class. I was always up first and always, you know, maybe they didn't like it. But, hey, I was an immigrant and I needed to squeeze every drop from that fruit called college. And what did you learn about those foreign objects in the classroom with you? Were they, were they trying to muscle their way in front of you or were they pretty accommodating or what did, what did you notice coming from a different background and a different country? So this was in 1974, 1975. would look at me as a foreign object, which I was, not just a foreign person. I had my accent still, so they would, they would not be able to understand me, which was one of the first things I did for reinvention is I practiced elocution so that I could sound, uh, sound the way that would be easily understandable by my classmates and and professors. The other thing that I realized these <laughs> foreign people that they were actually nice. I never knew that men could be friends and men could be nice. I just always assumed that I couldn't be friends with a man. But I came out of college with some stellar male friendships. That was that was lovely for me to learn. So how did you get into the business of helping women who had been abused? Let's segue over to that. What did you study in college? And then how did you move into this? The thing that I studied in college had almost nothing to do with what I'm doing now, except for the fact that I studied communication and public speaking, which is helping me now. The reason I am in the social justice space with uh, asking women and men to look at what's going on at home and to end violence is because as I, when I became a mom at 31 years old, there was a part of me, a very strong part of me that wanted to abuse my infant son. And in the moment that that happened, I really don't understand why I became so lucky in that I understood that what I was trying to do was wrong or what I wanted to do was wrong. And I was even luckier in that I was married to a man who was never abused. So when I told him, I want to hurt our baby, he said, get help. That baby is now 34 years old. He's on the board of my foundation. He's one of my biggest supporters. And it is the process of understanding how to parent without rage and anger that led me to the work I do now. So how did you get help? Did you look, at, look to a local group? Did you go into psychotherapy? And, and talk a little bit about the generational problem of abuse. Was that a a generational problem in your own family? 
I am sure that it was because growing up, when I look back, there was not a single friend or cousin that I had who was not going through the same thing. And I would hear stories from my parents and my aunts and my uncles about the abuse that they received. One of my uncles, who is dead now, remembers that his father pushed him down the stairs because he did something wrong. That's just crazy. However, even though it happened just a piece of a generation ago, doesn't mean that we have to continue it. And the reason I was able to stop, and when I say stop, I mean cold turkey stop, was because my love for this little person was bigger than my rage. If my rage was bigger than my love, I would be in big trouble. And I didn't know that that's what was happening, that I loved this this tiny being so much that I couldn't imagine hurting this infant, this six-week-old infant who was so helpless and vulnerable, and I was the only person in the world that was responsible for his well-being. I was nursing full-time, and I would look at him suckle and think, my body is sustaining you? How, How does that work? And then at the same time, I want to hurt you? No, something has to be wrong with me. So yes, I did seek therapy. I did try to go to a group, but groups didn't work for me. The groups that I ended up in were all, a lot of them were focused on sexual violence at home, and I did not have sexual violence at home. So, in that case, I was lucky. I had physical violence at home. And I remember one therapist trying to get me to say something like, Well, maybe I don't remember the sexual violence. And I got up and I said, No. You will not put that in my head. I did not have that. That is not why I I am here. So I kept, I want to tell you, I wish I could tell you that it was easy to find a therapist who was helpful. It was not. I think I cycled through about five or six therapists before I found the person who could not only hear me, but listen to what I was not saying. So he could, he could see the emotions and the feelings and allow me to sit with it until I could find the words. And he's an amazing man. It's, it's been a 20-year relationship with him, and I am still in touch with him. He's my mentor now. I go to him with, with the real problems that I face in the world with this work, and he still helps me through that. That's pretty amazing, but that's that is that is really the the thing that can change the cycle. Now you've studied this, I'm sure. Why does the cycle continue? And because we see a lot of things that cycle through families, you know, alienation, all this kind of stuff goes from generation to generation unless there is an intervening in a psychological way. Do you know what the mechanism is for that? Is it just that this is the way it is? No, this is not the way it is. But I think I can come up with a metaphor that would help everyone to understand. Leslie, do you know how to ride a bike? Mm-hmm. When did you learn 
how to ride a bike? I was probably about four, I'm guessing, something okay. like that. When was the last time you rode your bike? Uh, my, that bike when I was four, <laughs> a bike around my, you know, one of those bikes that you rent uh, here a couple weeks ago. Okay. The first time you rented a grown-up bike, did it ever occur to you that you would not know how to ride that bike? No. No. You, you knew it. Your, your body, you, your, you looked at the bike, your eyes took in the handlebars and where the brakes were, and you adjusted the seat, and you pushed off, and you may have been wobbly for two seconds, but you laughed at yourself and you thought, okay, here I go. That is how behavior works. If at age four, we learn a skill that we can never forget. Even if you tried to forget how to ride a bike, your brain cannot forget that. That is what happens with violence. We learn at a very young age that people who are violent to us, they say they love us. They say things like, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't do whatever it is they're doing. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be hitting you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be screaming at you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't lock you in a closet. I mean, you can think of the gamut of violence. And we hear that from people who say they love us. So it's like riding a bike for us. When we find a romantic partner and that partner does the same thing that other people have done, since we were little, we, our brain goes, oh yeah, I recognize this, this is normal. I know how to live in this environment. Does that make sense? Sure, how do you break it then? The way that I broke it was to realize, first I would tell myself, Indrani, what happened to you as a child? Was that okay? I would say, no, it wasn't okay. What do you wish had happened to you as a child? And I would begin to dream about the way I was parented. And I would then parent my child the same way. So if I dreamt that I was, would be parented without without hitting. I never, I never did hit any of my children. I have two of them. Then I would, I would never hit. It took me another five to seven years or maybe 10 years to understand that yelling and screaming and emotional abuse, like the silent treatment were also forms of abuse. And I, you know, I still apologize to my children for that. So it went from, Indrani, would you have liked to not been hit? Yes, I would have liked to have not been hit. Okay, then you cannot hit. And then it went to, Indrani, would you have liked for somebody to not scream at you? Yes. So then I stopped screaming. Then I realized that giving people the silent treatment, especially children, was a very cruel thing to do. It's... um. It's a form of punishment that the child cannot understand. So the child begins to think things like, oh, if I'm really, really good, then mom or dad will speak to me. Oh, 
Maybe it's because I, you know, splash too much water in the bathtub that mom and dad are not speaking to me. Oh my gosh, I'm sure I, I was sloppy when I, you know, when I was at the dinner table last night, so mom and dad aren't speaking to me. Children make up lies in their head so that they can fix themselves in order to fix the relationship. And I was realizing that as I was understanding the things that had happened to me as a child. I have to tell you a story. When I was, let's see, my second child was born. She was about a year. So I was about 36, 37. I took my kids and my parents on a vacation. And I took the baby and I went to the front desk to make some kind of um, inquiry about something. And when I came back, my mother was screaming at my little one who was five at the time. And he looked at me with a very confused look and he said, I didn't do it. And I looked at my mother and I said, what, what's going on? And she said, he made me do it. He made me do it. He made me stub my toe. And I looked at her and I looked at him and in a flash, I was that child on the floor who was being yelled at for doing something that was totally not my fault. And I gave my baby to my sister and I scooped him up and I whispered, you did not have anything to do with that. And I took him out of the house. And I, I said to my dad, take him to the beach, keep him there. And that was the moment that I began to peel back layers of what was happening to me at that young age. But it took, it took my mother screaming at my son in the same way that she screamed at me to unlock a very powerful memory. So how did you deal with your parents once you've changed the way that you look at it? That can disrupt the whole family unit, right? It disrupted everything. So I told my husband and we decided that I would never leave my children alone with the parent who was abusive. They would always be together and we would always be in touch. So, you know, sometimes you hear immigrants say, oh, I took my kid back uh, to my country and I left them for three months. That was never going to happen, ever. I was always going to be the protector to my children. The other thing that happened is I explained very carefully to my parents what would and would not be acceptable with my children. I cannot tell you that it was easy. They loved their grandparents and I wanted them to love their grandparents. However, I was going to make very clear boundaries for everybody's behavior with my children. And did your parents accept that? And did the relationship change? My parents accepted it because they had no choice. If they wanted to see their grandchildren, this was the way things were going to work. Did the relationship change with the grandchildren? Yes. I don't think once they realized that yelling and screaming and, you know, 
generally being the way that they may have been growing up was not acceptable. They found other ways in. Yep. It changed. That's awesome. And so how did you bring this out to other women in Indrani's Light Foundation and talk a little bit about that and how you've taken that around the world? And you're working in, I guess, the U.S., um, India, and Trinidad, or are you expanded beyond that now? I have been working globally, and it was expanded beyond India and Trinidad. However, now I'm pretty much only working in the U.S. with the foundation, which is now rebranded from Indrani's Light to RAFT. And RAFT means Resilience for Advocates Through Foundational Training. And you can find us at raft.org. What we do at, so the 501c3 is still in Drani's light. What we do at the foundation is we take curriculum, leadership curriculum, into foundations, sexual and domestic violence foundations. And we teach the staff how to take care of themselves with setting boundaries, with saying no, with understanding what shame and guilt and embarrassment and humiliation are, with understanding empathy and compassion. And by the way, these classes are on our website for free. The MP3s of these classes are available so people can listen to it going to work and Every, anybody can begin to develop these skills that I have to tell you, I did not learn them as a child or as a young adult or even as an older adult. I had to teach these skills to myself. And so give me an example of what it is you might learn. Is it how to change your attitude and your behavior or just give me some titles of what, the, what listeners might expect to find there? Okay, so one of, the, one of my very favorite tools comes from William Urey, and this is the first book I'll tell you about. It's called The Power of a Positive No. William Urey tells us that we fail to say no to people when they ask us things for one of three reasons. We're trying to accommodate them. We're angry that they're asking us, or we are avoiding what we what we really want to say, which is, no, I'm not going to do that. So we say yes. He gives us a tool called yes, exclamation, no, period, yes, question mark. So for people who are listening, I would love for you to write or on your phone or with a, you know, writing instrument, yes, exclamation, no, period, yes, question mark. The yes exclamation asks us to know what we are saying yes to when we desire to say no. So let's go back to the story I told. When I told my mother that she was not allowed to yell at my child, the thing that I was saying yes to to very, very clearly was this. There will be no physical or emotional violence heaped on my children ever by anyone, not me, not you. 
standing on that very firm foundation of what I want, I was able to say no to what I did not want. No, you will never behave like this with my child or children again. Then what does the yes question mark mean? In this case, I did not give my mother a yes question mark because the yes question mark is what else can a person do? If so, if she cannot yell, what else can she do? There was nothing else she could do. There was no yelling. With me, when I felt like yelling and I said to myself, no, Indrani, you cannot yell, my yes question mark was, can you take yourself out of the space? Can you give yourself a timeout until you calm down? And I would say, yes, I, I can do that. I can go to the toilet. I can sit on the toilet and do some breathing until I realize that I love this child more than I want to yell in this moment. So that's a tool that I, I use almost every minute of every day. As soon as someone asks me something, I ask myself, so Indrani, what is your yes? So Leslie, when I was asked to be on this podcast, what is my yes? My yes was, this woman is doing great work. Her audience is exactly the kind of woman that I would want to reach. I love what I'm hearing. My yes is, I want to align myself with this amazing woman and her amazing community. So I said, yes. Let's talk a bit about how President Obama influenced your work? I was so fortunate in that I received an invitation to be part of a small group of people to meet the president. And I thought, okay, what, what is it that I want to ask the president? How, how will I use my few minutes with this leader to seed my work. And uh, when I met him, uh, all the only thing I talked about was ending violence for his girls and, and my children. And that, that seemed to have reached deep into his heart. And we had a few more minutes of conversation. And the next time I met him was at a Christmas party in the White House. And I said, Mr. President, do you remember me? And he said, yes. You are the woman who wants to help end violence. And I had a big smile on my face and I said, thank you, Mr. President. So that's how it happened. Yeah, he was great. I, I got to know them pretty well when um, Mrs. Obama did the, uh, she guest edited an issue of more. And so we spent a lot of time with them and they oh. were kind of amazing and they really had a mission. So let's talk a little bit about I mean, frankly, you've picked one of the toughest, most intransient issues to tackle on a daily basis. What do you do for fun so that you don't burn out? Because I know a lot of people in these fields burn out and then they've got to reinvent out of the field. What do you do? I see you're a marathoner, you're a triathlete. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you the story of the triathlon. When I turned 49, I was, I realized that I was severely depressed and was um, 
planning active suicide. And my therapist, the same therapist that I love so much, said to me, Indrani, I think this is depression. And I said, ah, that's not a thing. And he said, yes, I think it is. And I think you should start medication. And I did. And after six or eight weeks, I woke up and I was so different. I wasn't feeling heavy and there was no fog. And I said to him, what's going on? Why am I not worried about all the stuff that's still in my life? And he said, so the depression is clearing up and your anxiety is gone. And I said, can I live like this for the rest of my life? And he said, only if you want to. And I thought, <laughs> I want to. So then I thought, okay, Indrani, your 50th birthday is coming. How are you going to put the world on notice that this is a new woman? And I thought, I'm going to do something that no other woman in my family has ever done or will ever do. I learned how to swim, and I signed up for an Olympic distance triathlon, which is a mile swim, 25 miles on the bike, and a six-mile run. And I was dead last, but I got a medal. And my, my um, whole training routine was to finish injury-free. I was not injured, and that night I went dancing with my friends. And <laughs> that is how I became an elite athlete. And then I thought, okay, you know, I hate to swim. So what am I going to do next? I thought, well, I know how to run. So I'll do a couple of tri uh, marathons. So that's how that started, um, that I did three marathons and a few more half marathons. And now at 66, I pretty much do just walking, but I walk a lot. And so that's how I get myself out of a funk of if I hear a particularly nasty story. And Leslie, you will not believe some of the stories I hear. I go for a walk and I am grateful for two things. I'm grateful that I am, I am in this work and I'm grateful that the woman who told me the story was alive to tell me the story. And I don't think of her as a victim. I think of her as a thriving survivor. Any woman who goes through domestic violence and lives to tell about it, that's a hero. Now, since we're at the very end here, Indrani, for the women who are listening who would like to start a similar type of foundation, what are your best three do's and don'ts? Um, keeping in mind that these are going to be women 40 plus like us. They may have had, maybe they've had a um, job before, long-term job. Maybe they're starting from scratch. And, you know, they're, we don't need the basics, but what would you say to a really good friend that would get them started down this road? That's a really great question. And the first thing I would say to, now this is a really good friend, right? So this friend knows me well. I would say, so if you knew you only had a month to live, what would you regret not doing? And that's not morose, that is dreaming. And I would make her answer me. And then let's say she says, I would make ice cream. I would say, when was the last time you made ice cream? Oh, I don't know how to make ice cream. Well, how about signing up for a class? 
to make ice cream? The short answer to all of this is you have to back in to what your soul and spirit requires. And I think the fastest way to get there is to start a gratitude practice every single day and start writing what you would do if you had all the time in the world and all the resources in the world. Because within those answers is a kernel of truth about what your soul and spirit really wants. Any other tips? Say somebody is, you know, in a situation where they know this is what they want to do. Are there ways to get into it? Do you keep your job? Do you do it on the side? Is it something you throw yourself into wholly? How do you, how do you raise money? Do you have to go out and raise money first? Can you start it uh, as a small thing? The first thing you do is you keep your job. You keep your job as you are looking at your budget. So you have to decide if you're bringing in $10 a month and your expenses are $8 a month, those $2 is not enough to start something else. You have to look for something in the world that is somewhat aligned with what you want to do. And do it as a side hustle is what we say. So maybe once a month you want to volunteer at this place that has something to do with what you want to do. The other part of that is if you can afford to quit your job and you have enough resources to not hurt your family and put a little bit of those resources into this new dream, do that. But go slowly. I made a big mistake. I didn't go slowly. That's a whole different conversation. But if you take small steps towards a big dream, that is the way to get there. It's like training for a marathon. You don't get up and run 26 miles tomorrow. You have to train for six to eight months to go from zero to 26. And so you try that. And of course, physical exercise has to be part of that whole formula. Do you feel like you're fulfilled every day, Indrani? Is that something that you get out of your work? Oh, God, yes. Oh, so somebody said to me, so how would you answer that question? And I said, I would not change a thing. If my last day is tomorrow, I am doing everything today that I could say, okay, did it. No regrets. And I'm awesome. so grateful. I'm so grateful for that. Awesome. What a wonderful way to end this podcast, Indrani. Amazing. I love it. And I even love that, you know, you had to work on yourself again and, and figure out how you were going to handle yourself and take care of yourself too. I think there's so much information here for all of our listeners. So thank you for taking the time. And we can't wait to see what else you do. Thank you for inviting me. You have a whole world of people you could invite and you invited me and I am so grateful. So thank you all for joining us on our podcast, which is a celebration of two years of Covey Club. 
I hope that this has enlightened you and given you some inspiration as well as some tactical tools for changing your life and changing your perception of things and moving along and not feeling stuck. That's one of the most important things we do. And I hope that if you are interested in reinvention, if you are interested in connecting with interesting, smart, intelligent women like yourself, if you're interested in making connections for business or for friendship, you'll come over to CoveyClub.com and join us. We have a wonderful Covey Connect app and you can meet women that way. And you can also join a lot of our events. We have a tremendous amount of events coming this year in 2020. We have a trip to New Orleans in June, June 5th through 7th, and we're getting the details together for that soon. We have our Savannah trip in 2020, which is to a spa in Arizona. These things are really where the magic happens. It is true that when you put women like us in a room together, we do connect, we do make new friends, we do change the world together. And that's what Cubby Club is all about. So come join us and thank you so much for being here today. Take care.